According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be, moved, to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Matthew one eighteen this morning for our starting passage. Matthew one eighteen. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer, shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you once again for the privilege and blessing we have to assemble together and receive instruction. We ask for distractions to be set aside and your hand of guidance upon us as you open our eyes to the truth of your word. Father, give us ears to hear what the Spirit says to the local churches. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we are... We took a brief glimpse of it at the end of last week's lesson, but in reality this hour is our first opportunity to take a look at Matthew chapter 1, the announcement of Jesus' birth to Joseph. This is the sixth area of study in the portion of our Harmony of the Gospels that is titled The Birth, Infancy, and Adolescence of Jesus and then John the Baptist, dealing with really preliminary items with respect to the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ. I guess you would say one of those preliminary items to his earthly ministry is <laughs> his physical birth. Preliminary item, so to speak. Other things will include, of course, his upbringing, his training, and uh, everything that preceded his arrival at the River Jordan to be baptized by John the Baptizer. We have previously seen the announcement of his birth to his mother, that is, the mother of his humanity, and uh, we are now going to look at the masculine side of things as the announcement comes to his father. It says in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 1, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they had come together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, that is, to divorce her secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." Now all this took place to fulfill what had what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. All right, there is our text this morning from verses 18 through 25. The first point of study we want to get out of this, during Joseph and Mary's engagement, Mary became pregnant and Joseph planned a discreet divorce. This sets the stage for what is going on here in this passage. During Joseph and Mary's engagement, Mary became pregnant and Joseph planned a discreet divorce. Joseph not being aware ahead of time what uh, the source of that pregnancy was going to be. Different from Mary's uh, message when the angel was sent to Mary ahead of time before the pregnancy to alert her to what would cause the pregnancy. Mary was alerted before the pregnancy. Joseph was only alerted after the pregnancy when his actions then or his intentions then were to uh, bring about the divorce. Remember, the plan of God incorporated not only a mother for the humanity of Jesus Christ, but a father for the humanity of Jesus Christ. That is, an adoptive father we think of in the sense of Joseph being the adoptive father. That is, a uh, a male figure, a, a, a human father for his training, for his upbringing, for his grounding in the law, for his uh, example to follow and, and grow into uh, the manhood as far as his humanity is concerned. But in terms of a test on Joseph's part and in terms of the uh, examination of Joseph and his character and his obedience the father determined not to alert him ahead of time to the pregnancy, but to actually test him with the pregnancy and then to correct his intentions once those intentions became known. And I think that is 
significant in, uh, in light of this passage here as well. Now, some things of grammar that we want to examine with respect to these particular verses, that is verses 18 and 19, that they are engaged. They are engaged. And then the phrase, before they came together. We'll start with subpoint A now. We have an aorist passive participle. This is the verb that references their engagement from verse 18. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Betrothed to Joseph. We have an aorist passive participle of menesteuo. M-N-E-S-T-E-U-O. Menesteuo. Eris passive participle is important because it sets the context for when other activities occur. It is an aorist passive participle of menesteuo. M-N-E-S-T-E-U-O. And as you learn to read the Greek letters there, the mu is the M. That V looking thing is not a V, it's the nu, which, which is an N. The eta is a long E as uh, contrasted with the epsilon, which is the short E. All right, So we have two E's in this uh, verb, even though they look like they are different letters, because they are different letters. M-N-E, that's the long E. So if you're transliterating it, you might even put the long line over, the, over that E. M-N-E-S-T-E, but this one's the short E, U-O, and then that's the long O, the omega. Menestuo. And again, if you're translating it, you might put the long line over the O to remind you that it is the long O, it is the omega, rather than the omicron. Number 3423 in the Strong's Index. Now, in the active voice, menestuo, if, if I were to come along and menestuo somebody, that means I am actively wooing. Uh, because the verb in the active voice means to woo, or to propose, to ask in marriage. As an active verb, it's to woo and ask in marriage. This is not in the active voice. It is in the passive voice, which means to be wooed or to be asked for in marriage, to be proposed to, we would say, in modern language. And uh, given that Mary was proposed to or the uh, marriage contract was agreed to uh, with reference to Mary, it is uh, quite appropriate for it to be in the passive voice, which we have here, the aorist passive. But it is also a participle, the aorist active participle. In other words, indicating that this is the context in which the main verb occurs. Main verb occurs in, in terms of the discovery. In verse 18, she was found to be with child. So the, the primary verb of this verse is the discovery, that she was found. Her, her pregnancy was exposed. Her pregnancy was manifest that uh, she was pregnant, or it was discovered that she was pregnant. But the aorist active participle precedes the action of the main verb, and that is true throughout the New Testament, true throughout Greek writing. Now, menestuo is used three times in the New Testament. It's used here in Matthew 1.18, it's used in Luke 1.27, it's used in Luke 2.5, all these contexts with reference to uh, Joseph and Mary in the most significant engagement in the history of the world. <laughs> you know, engagement uh, is something that precedes marriage, and generally we don't make a big deal out of engagement either in biblical times or in modern times, because it simply refers to that period of time prior to the marriage. And generally speaking, when we're looking back to things in, in the past, we're referencing, in most cases, the marriage. You know, they've been married 20 years or 40 years or 50 years or 100 years or however long they've been married. And, and then the engagement portion tends to really not matter, except for perhaps to the two parties involved. You know, people that can maybe look back to their time of engagement with fondness or with uh, memories and, and the different things there. Sometimes they're very long, sometimes they're very short. In particular, in our culture, um, it is not as a significant period of time as maybe we would think of in terms of the marriage. Well, 
It's different in biblical times, particularly in ancient Israel and the customs of the day. And we're going to look at some of that history this morning to realize why the engagement period is significant in in all of Jewish history. But in this particular engagement, because it establishes clearly that that Mary is a virgin, that the prompting or the desire for the divorce prior to the wedding ceremony uh, is indicative of the fact that Mary is still a virgin. And the motivation of Joseph to seek the divorce is indicative that Mary is still a virgin because Joseph knows on his part that uh, that he wasn't the father of this pregnancy or, or you know the earthly cause for Mary being pregnant. So uh, these things being important as well. The, the witness to her virginity is is important in, by virtue of the plan of God going forth and the fulfillment of Isaiah as, uh, as prophetic scripture. So, we have the heiress passive participle here of Menestuo. Secondly, in her subpoint B, it specifically states, before they came together. Before they came together. Usually this is thought of in, in a sexual way, but it's not necessary to think of it in a sexual way. In fact, it's more normal to take it in a non-sexual way. Indica- may indicate, and I believe it does indicate, that they had not even met at this point. Before they came together. Doesn't, it's not simply saying before they had sex. Okay? It's before they had come together. That is, before they had even met may indicate that they had not even met at this point. Remember, in terms of arranged marriages, it was not necessary for the groom to meet the bride. Uh, We have the best illustration of that in uh, Genesis, when Abraham sends his servant to Mesopotamia, and his servant goes and he negotiates with with, uh, the father there and the brother of, of Rebekah, for her to be the bride of Isaac. And the, the contract was signed between the servant and Rebekah's uh, father. And then Rebekah was brought back to marry Isaac. And it was simply a matter of fact, let's go ahead and turn there. I think it's familiar enough to each one of us, but it's worth looking at with our own, own eyes. So turn back to Genesis 24, the bride for Isaac. And the servant that sent forth, and uh, the introduction to Rebecca there in verse 15, and the agreement that's made here. Then uh, Laban and Bethuel, that's really a long chapter, but down in um, verse 50, Laban and Bethuel replied, This matter comes from the Lord, so we cannot speak to you bad or good. Here is Rebekah before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. So the contract is agreed to. That is, uh, Laban the brother, Bethuel the father. And that's uh, really indicative of Laban and his... Uh, his wheeling and dealing that he's even involved in these things to begin with. It really should simply be Bethuel alone. But Abraham's servant is, uh, has Abraham's authorization to contract for this marriage, and he does so, and they go forth. And uh, so it is simply a matter when they, uh, verse 61, Rebekah rose with her maids, and they mounted their camels and followed the man. So the servant took Rebekah and departed. And then Isaac is just hanging out back at uh, Bir Lahai Roy in verse 62. And uh, he's praying there. And they come and they meet. Um, Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted his eyes and looked. And behold, camels were coming. Rebekah lifted up her eyes. And when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel. She said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? And the servant said, He is my master. And then she took her veil and covered herself. You know, the the very rapid wedding preparations as they occur, getting off the back of a camel. (laughs) All right. The servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. In other words, Isaac is notified of the wedding contract that had been agreed upon between the servant at Abraham's behest and this girl's father. Then Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and he took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her, and thus Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The wedding ceremony was quite simple at that point, <laughs> as we think of it. Uh, the contract having already been agreed to, and the 
wedding ceremony, if you think of it in terms of ceremony, but the the um, consummation of this marriage simply being the matter of taking her into the tent, and they are man and wife. So, with respect to, and I've given you, last week I gave you a handout and gave you the opportunity to read through there in the intervening week, and if you have uh, not done so or you weren't here last week, then we will go through it together again this morning. I have more copies up front, which you are certainly free to take with you as you go. Um, but the culture is quite a bit different than what we're accustomed to, and um, we'll explain that here in a moment as we get to that sheet. But I think the phrase here, as we look at it in Matthew 18, uh, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together. In other words, the the promise, the agreement. Uh, on the part of the parents involved, they had come to that agreement, but the two parties that had been agreed upon had not yet met. I think that's the natural way to take the phrase, preen a sunelthane outus, before they had come together, indicating that they had not even met at this point. Then we look at verse 19. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man... Point two now, the second observation from this text. Joseph was a believer. The phrase righteous man indicating that he is a believer. No unbeliever can be called righteous. We have the divine commentary here. Joseph was a righteous man. And obviously, in the plan of God, he's not going to entrust the birth of the humanity of his son to a couple of unbelievers. Mary's a believer when the, uh, as a virgin when the angel approaches her and says, Hail favored one, that is recipient of grace, that she is a believer walking in the light and she is selected on the basis of grace to be the mother of the humanity of Jesus Christ. Likewise, Joseph is a born-again believer. God is not going to have Jesus Christ born to a, a, a mixed marriage, as it were, with an unbelieving father and, a belie- and an unbelieving mother. They're both believers. And Joseph is called a righteous man, righteous by position, but also righteous by his practice, righteous by his walk, by virtue of him walking in the light, uh, obeying the promises of God, uh, desiring to do uh, the right thing in each circumstance. I don't know why I have those gaps after my apostrophes. Is that bugging you? It's bugging me to death. It's the second slide I've seen that way. Little quirks pop up because I'm using PowerPoint uh, XP back in the office and PowerPoint 97 on this laptop. And occasionally it's got these little quirks. bugs me to death. All right, I'll get over it. It's just a matter of immaturity. And I need to develop a relaxed mental attitude with respect to apostrophes and spaces thereafter. But he's a righteous man. Joseph, her husband, was being a righteous man. The Bible tells us, of course, that there is none righteous, no, not one. When there's no righteousness apart from the righteousness that God imputes to our account, the righteousness that God supplies. Joseph, her husband. Now, it's interesting. They haven't even met yet. And they are, verse 18 says that they they have been betrothed. And yet, Joseph is called a husband. All right, now that's different from our culture. Our culture, uh, for example, I guess we would say, um, I'm going to get these dates wrong now. Um, I was betrothed on, it was July 30th, I believe. Could be wrong on that. I think that's correct. Was it June? June or July? No, it was July. Okay. Because we met in May of 1990, and then we were betrothed on July 30th. I have to go back and check the calendar. If that was a Sunday afternoon, then that's a good date. But I was not her husband until May 25th of the, of the following year. Uh, you know, a desert storm came up and I was shipped overseas and things that will hinder you from getting married, especially when you're 10,000 miles apart from one another. And so came back from desert storm in April of uh, 1991 and we got married on May 25th of 1991. And so it was from May 25th that I could rightly be referred to as a husband in common usage of the term. We would not think of of, uh, of uh, me being a husband prior to that, even throughout the uh, the betrothal stage. But in the Hebrew culture, 
Joseph was considered a husband. Mary was considered a wife because the contract had been agreed to. The bride's price had been exchanged. And we'll examine that here in a moment. But he is called a husband, her husband, in verse 19. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to divorce her secretly. Likewise, the need for a divorce. See, between July 30th and May 25th, if I had wanted to just cancel the whole thing, in other words, and just I found out something about Sharon that just absolutely was unacceptable, and I said, oh, well, forget that, um, I could simply walk away and say, you know, whatever form or fashion and want, you know, some, some broken engagements can be quite spectacular. <laughs> or they can be quite simple and amiable and, you know, mutually accepted and things like that. Um, but there's no need for a divorce proceeding, see. I would not have to go to a court, for example. I would not have to file legal documents. I would not have to petition for a, uh, for a divorce. Alright? Which is quite an interesting process, by the way. If, um, if, uh, a married person does get a divorce in, in our particular culture, we are required to go to an earthly judge. Which is quite remarkable when we get a little bit further into 1 Corinthians and we examine the, uh, the Paul's, uh, reference to the Corinthians of their failure by, uh, taking their matters before an earthly judge. And uh, things involved there in terms of divorce uh, when believers get involved in that kind of thing. Anyway, that's a side trip and that's coming up down the road when we get that far. What I'm saying in this verse, though, is that they are only engaged. We think of it as engaged. And yet Joseph has, has to take legal steps in order to uh, invalidate the uh, contract that had been ratified. That is the marriage contract between the parents. And so a divorce is necessary. Now, some point A. Under the marriage contract, Joseph is already legally Mary's husband. Joseph is already legally Mary's husband. And that is a legal obligation on Joseph's part. They've not yet met. They've not yet come together. They've not yet, um, rat- uh, they've not yet uh, consummated that marriage. But he's already legally her husband. The uh, Greek word there is aner, A-N-E-R. It's the word for man or husband. It's it's different from anthropos. Anthropos refers to man or mankind in general in terms of the species of man. But aner references man in terms of the gender, the male gender, the man as opposed to the woman or the husband in a marriage. Aner, A-N-E-R, number 435. This engagement period could have been for up to a year, and it was usually for a year. This one's going to be shortened. This one's going to be shortened because when Joseph recognizes the hand of God upon his life and recognizes the privilege that he and Mary have in raising the Christ, he immediately um, ends that engagement period and takes her into his home goes from the engagement stage to the married stage as we, as we think of it. All right? Joseph understanding that if he and Mary, <laughs> you know, parenthood's an awesome responsibility anyway for any husband and wife. You know, the 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 step from from going from 2 to 3 is the biggest step in the world when it, when you go from a marriage to a family, when you go from just a couple to parenthood. That's a huge step right there. Imagine being this couple, being the couple selected to raise the humanity of the of the Christ. And uh, so I think it's it's a remarkable uh, expression of Matthew's leadership. Uh, when we when we examine this, the angel says, "Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife." All right. Now he's already a husband, and Mary's already his wife. But he's not to be afraid to take her as his wife. In other words, to finish the step of transitioning from the engagement to the marriage as we think of it. And, uh, because, you know, she's not, she's not the harlot. She's not, 
uh, promiscuous. This is a work of God that has produced this pregnancy. And the angel doesn't say when this should be. The angel doesn't say, take her as your wife today. Or the angel doesn't say, finish out the one-year engagement. The angel doesn't give those specific instructions. The angel just encourages or uh, offers the, the explanation that Joseph needs to, uh, to make a better decision. And, uh, and by the way, without this information, Joseph's making a good decision. Jo- if, if, if Mary was promiscuous and got pregnant the regular way of getting pregnant, okay, <laughs> the way that 4,000 years of human history have demonstrated women get pregnant, Joseph's making the right decision here. He's making the right decision as a son of David and someone who is, is potentially uh, transmitting the line of Christ to future generations. Remember, as far as Joseph knows, uh, the, the line of Christ and the seed of David is still, you know, a hundred years away, a thousand years away. So Joseph is doing the right thing by uh, not marrying, uh, in, as far as he knows, by not marrying the harlot, by not marrying this promiscuous girl, by seeking out a virgin, by seeking to, to uh, preserve the, the Davidic line. So he's doing the right thing based upon the information he has. But now Gabriel comes and gives him more accurate information. And Joseph has to respond. That's what volition is all about. Responding to the revealed word of God. And now with more information available to him, he makes the right decision. Now, again, as I was saying a moment ago, Gabriel here does not say, or, or the angel here does not say um, to, uh, to marry her today or tomorrow or any time prior to the engagement. When... Um, in verse 24, when Joseph wakes up, he takes her immediately. He wasn't commanded to, but he does so. And I think that also is indicative of his faith, indicative of his um, acceptance of the responsibility and his leadership. Recognizing that, uh, you know, in, in normal circumstances, when two virgins get together and, then they, and they get married, well, there's, there's time, at least nine months anyway, <laughs> there's time for them to come to know each other in terms to grow together and things, um, in terms of a marriage before they become parents. Matthew realizes, or uh, uh, Joseph realizes, that they're going to be parents here very quickly. And, uh, and I think that his urgency at ending the engagement immediately on, on this very next day when he wakes up uh, indicates leadership on his part in desiring to make certain that, that uh, he and his wife have like-mindedness in the scriptures before they take on this awesome responsibility of raising this child. All right, so we have some point A. Under the marriage contract, Joseph is already legally Mary's husband. Some point B. Joseph chose to divorce Mary secretly rather than exposing her to the public shame the law required. Joseph chose to divorce Mary secretly rather than exposing her to the public shame the law required. And we can turn back to Deuteronomy 22 and see what Joseph's option truly was here at this point. Under Mosaic Law. Joseph chose to divorce Mary secretly rather than exposing her to the public shame the law required. Deuteronomy 22. So we can turn back there and look at this passage. Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24. That is chapter 22, verses 23 and 24. Two things happened to me on Wednesday mornings (laughs) with respect to Mr. Dowd using this microphone on Wednesday nights. We always, Bob always has to turn the volume down a little bit. The volume level gets adjusted up every time Warren speaks. I guess what the difference between his voice and my voice. The second thing is the earpiece. I'm constantly adjusting it and getting it 
I don't know what that means. Either his ears are bigger than mine or mine are bigger than his, but whatever way that works. But Anyway, just minor little things. Not as bad as the apostrophe. That, that bugs me even more. The positive item, though, is that he usually leaves water up here for me to drink, and that, that works out real well. All right, are you at Deuteronomy yet? I know you were busy writing and hadn't quite gotten to the page flipping. Deuteronomy 22. <clears throat> the... Um, Oh, this is not the verse, the passage I was thinking of. This is not the passage. Okay, what I'm thinking of is up in verse 13 and 14. If any man takes a wife and goes into her and then turns against her. All right. And that kind of lays out the step. Takes a wife would be the engagement stage. You contract the, the marital agreement. Goes into her means that they consummated that agreement with a ceremony and the actual sexual activity. And then turns against her and charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Okay. The girl's virginity was a matter of public record. It was a matter, it was a matter for her, uh, father, for her brothers to guard her virginity, to uh, testify to her virginity, to and, and the contract that it was agreed to between the parents was a contract based upon a virgin bride. A non-virgin bride could still get married, but it was a significantly um, less desirable uh, contract and would oftentimes be a concubine contract rather than a uh, full marriage wife uh, contract when you examine the difference between wives and concubines. And so he charges her with shameful deeds and publicly defames her and says, I took this woman, but when I came near her, I did not find her a virgin. Then the girl's father and her mother shall take and bring out the evidence of the girl's virginity to the elders of the city at the gate. And so they have a public display. This is a matter of public um, evidence with the court system of their day. Some of this is very awkward to us. Again, we're separated by 2,000 years of culture and history and all the rest. But in the, uh, in the Hebrew culture, this was considered normal. This was considered uh, a matter for public discussion. The girl's father shall say to the elders, I gave my daughter to this man for a wife, but he turned against her. Behold, he has charged her with shameful deeds, saying, I did not find your daughter a virgin. But this is the evidence of my daughter's virginity, and they shall spread the garment before the elders of the city. So the elders of that city shall take the man and chastise him. And they shall find him a hundred shekels of silver and give it to the girl's father because he publicly defamed a virgin of Israel. And she shall remain his wife and he cannot divorce her all his days. Remember, Mosaic law did have divorce provision. But in this circumstance, he was, um, uh, this husband was, was prohibited from ever exercising a divorce option forever. But if this charge is true, that the girl was not found a virgin. Then they shall bring out the, the girl to the doorway of her father's house, and the men of her city shall stone her to death, because she has committed an act of folly in Israel by playing the harlot in her father's house. Thus you shall purge the evil from among you. This is what Joseph could have done. Had he found, or had he desired, to not only break off the engagement, but to publicly shame her, expose her for her harlotry, Bring her to the elders of the uh, of the uh, city there, and have her stoned to death. Described here in this passage. So, I guess the better reference there would be verses thirteen through twenty-one. These verses that follow focus on. Uh, if a man is found lying with a married woman, then both of them shall die. The man who lay with the woman and the woman, thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. And here is uh, either adultery or even just simply uh, premarital sex when the engagement period considers that woman to be a married woman already. Verse 23, if there's a girl who's a virgin engaged to a man, another man finds her in the city and lies with her. And uh, 
Again, we have the circumstances here. In the city, of course, she has the option to cry out for help. In the field, in verse 25, when she cries out for help and there's no one to help her, then uh, you know she's not guilty because she's a rape victim in the in the things that happen there. I didn't really pursue a lot of these verses in the recent study on fornication because the uh, as the Bible makes the distinction here, rape is not fornication in terms of it not being voluntary on her behalf. All right. So this is Joseph. Returning now to Matthew chapter 1. His righteousness is manifest. Not only is he a believer, but he is a believer who is walking in the light, a believer who wants to do um, something here for her sake. It says, not wishing to disgrace her, planned to privately divorce her. He chose to rather initiate private divorce proceedings. And this was his choice. Now, this is where in my notes I inserted this sheet on the Savior's entry into the world. And we handed these out last week. If you don't have one, that's fine. We'll, I'll just read it to you here. You can read along. <clears throat> and it starts with the uh, Bible passage here in Matthew 1, 18-25. I won't reread all that. But then the paragraph below that, To our Western ways of thinking, the relationships in this passage are very bewildering. First, Joseph is said to be betrothed to Mary. Then he is said to be planning quietly to divorce her. And then she is called his wife. But the relationships represent normal Jewish marriage procedure in which there were three steps. The first step, there was the engagement. The engagement was often made when the couple were only children. It was usually made through the parents or through a professional matchmaker. And it was often made without the couple involved ever having seen each other. Marriage was held to be far too serious a step to be left to the dictates of the human heart. (laughs) I like that phrase. Now, this is weird to us because we, in this culture, our culture, in the American culture, typically do not have arranged marriages. All right? And I, I know pretty much everybody here. No one here is married to, by virtue of an arranged marriage. When I worked for the Travis County Sheriff's Department, a fellow officer of mine was married by virtue of an arranged marriage. He met his wife when she flew to, he was living in London at the time, and when she flew to London, uh, he met her on his wedding day and uh, married her and learned to love her. And they have four or six kids or something at this point of time. Quite an interesting circumstance. Um, as I say, the, the minimum one year is would be the case when they're of marriageable age. But if, you know, if they're five, six, seven years old, yes, the engagement's going to be more than a year, all right, clearly, until they get to where they can be of marriageable age. Then the second stage, the second step, there was the betrothal. The betrothal was that was what might be called the ratification of the engagement into which the couple had previously entered. At this point, the engagement entered into by the parents or the matchmaker could be broken if the girl was unwilling to go on with it. That statement, that question to Rebecca, are you willing to go with this man? The willingness. Uh, But once the betrothal was entered into, it was absolutely binding. It lasted for one year. That is, at the time of Christ, at at this particular era of Israel's history. During that year, the couple were known as man and wife, although they had not not the, the, uh, the rights of man and wife. It could not be terminated in any other way than by divorce. In the Jewish law, we, re- we frequently find what is to us a curious phrase. A girl whose fiancé had died during the year of betrothal is called a virgin who was a widow. And we come across that in, in, uh, in the, the text, and it strikes us as odd, the virgin who is a widow. Well, how many virgin widows are out there? See, in our culture, there really aren't any virgin widows unless... You know, some freak accident happened at the at the uh, at the reception. <laughs> you know, um, they were they got married and then they went to the reception and then some freak accident. The knife slipped when the cake was getting cut or whatever. You know, you'd hate to think something that dramatic would happen. But the groom dies, I guess, before the honeymoon, and then you could end up with a virgin widow. Well, 
So it's, it's rather hard to ponder, except in the biblical record with the understanding of the betrothal being considered as marriage, in which case, if the fiancé dies during that year of betrothal, she would then become a virgin who is a widow. It was at this stage that Joseph and Mary were. They were betrothed, and if Joseph wished to end the betrothal, he could do so in no other way than by divorce. And in that year of betrothal, Mary was legally known as his wife. Then the third stage was the marriage proper, which took place at the end of the year of betrothal. If we remember the normal Jewish wedding custom, then the relationships in this passage are perfectly usual and perfectly clear. So at this stage, it was told to Joseph that Mary was to bear a child and that the child had been begotten by the Holy Spirit and that he must call the child by the name Jesus. Jesus is the Greek form of the Jewish name Joshua, and Joshua means Jehovah is salvation. Long ago, the psalmist uh, had heard God say he will redeem Israel from all his sins, Psalm 130, verse 8. And Joseph was told that the child to be born would grow into the Savior who would save God's people from their sins. Jesus was not so much the man born to be king as the man born to be Savior. And that's important because uh, the expectations in many respects were they were looking for their king. Yeah, the, the, the carnal among them, and certainly the unbelievers among the Jews, were, weren't looking for a savior. They were looking for a king. They were looking for a political deliverance. He came to this world, not for his own sake, but for men and for our salvation. So that is the article on the Savior's entry into the world. Now, point three. Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God. Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God. Verses 20 and 21. Point three in this outline. Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God. I think this is a neat principle, a comfort to believers who are walking in the light, who are daily, that is, pursuing the plan of God for their life. You know, there's a terrible, a terrible thing, that the, and the adversary likes to use it in attacking us, and that's called doubt. And believers that proceed on the basis of doubt or worry or uncertainty, the, the horrible thing about doubt it means that we're not walking by faith. Romans 14 gives that, that contrast, that if, if you doubt, then you're not proceeding on the basis of faith, and whatever is not of faith is sin. And so doubting, if you make a decision based on doubt, and you're worried about it, is this the right thing, is this the wrong thing? In reality, what we should start to develop is a relaxed mental attitude that we're, we're walking in the light, we're in the Word of God daily, we're being molded into His image, and, and so unless we're shown otherwise, we can proceed forward on the assumption, uh, with the understanding that, that we're, we're doing right. And that if there's something that we're doing wrong, because maybe because of ignorance, because we don't have all the information. Um, it's, it's not because we're being rebellious, it's just because we don't know any better. Okay? And we have this example here. Joseph is proceeding based upon what he knows. Based upon his information. Jo Joseph has no way to know that his pregnant fiance uh, is still a virgin. He's got no way to know that. And so he's proceeding forward, he's got these intentions, and he has no way to know that he's about to make a wrong decision, that he's about to, that this divorce is, is wrong. Until he's given that information, and then he can make a, a, a different decision on the basis of faith. And that should be a pattern for each one of us. We're proceeding through life, and we're making decisions, and we're, we're raising our children, we're pursuing our marriage, and all these things are going on, and... Based upon what we know, we're making certain decisions. We're doing, we're taking part in certain activities. Now, it may come to our attention when additional information is revealed. In other words, um, more information, we become aware of more facts, or we become uh, convicted of more uh, of the Word of God. In other words, additional information then forces us to reevaluate what we're doing. 
But it's not uh, it's not a case where we just second guess ourselves all the time, and where we we uh, just day by day are filled with turmoil and wondering, am I doing the right thing? I think it's more so the case of we we relax about it. We proceed forward on the basis of faith and trust that if we are about to do something wrong, that God will make that clear. <laughs> He's not. If if we're walking in the integrity of our heart under the assumption that we're doing right. God is not just going to lead us off the cliff and just let us go and say, oh, well, go ahead and do that. Okay? I think uh, we just recently in the life of David had a similar example where David wanted to build the temple. David wants to build a temple. He wants to do something for the Lord. It's on his heart to do it. He goes and he tells the prophet Nathan, that, hey, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to go build this temple. Nathan says, oh, well, the Lord's with you. Go do what's on your heart. But then what did the Lord do? The Lord appeared to Nathan that night in a dream and said, nope, David's going to make a mistake. Don't let him do it. You know, God overruled David's intention, saying, good idea. Um, I respect your desire to do that, but it's not going to be you to do it. It's going to be your son Solomon to do it. And David heard the message and rejoiced and said, okay, great. God overruled my intentions. So uh, we find this pattern here. Joseph's intentions were overruled by the faithfulness of God. Verse 20 says, when he had considered this, when he had considered this, all right, and uh, we have here now the verb enthumeamai, enthumeamai, E-N-T-H-U-M-E-O-M-A-I. He's chewing on it. Enthumeamai. E-N-T-H-U-M-E-O-M-A-I. Number 1760. It's one of many thinking words in the New Testament, but this one focusing on the, the actual process, the reflection. What we try to encourage our young people to do, <laughs> to stop, slow down, think on it. All right? Think it through. In other words, don't just make a hasty decision. Don't just, um, like uh, it says in Second Thessalonians, to be so quickly shaken from your composure or disturbed. Think it through. Don't just react. Think it through. Enthumeamai. To process information by thinking about it carefully. To reflect on, to consider, to think. In other words, you're, you're weighing it out. You're, you're tossing it around. You're... Maybe you're listing the, the pros and the cons. <laughs> Maybe you're reflecting on it. And uh, Joseph had a lot of thinking to do. Finding out that his fiancée was pregnant. So he's chewing on it, thinking about what his options are, what the right thing to do would be. Other applications of enthumeamai include not just Matthew one twenty, but Matthew nine four, Acts ten nineteen. I think this gives us a nice uh, sense of the flavor of this of this verb. Matthew nine four. They were grumbling. Uh, they brought in the paralytic on the bed, and Christ said, Take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. And then some of the scribes said to themselves, This fellow blasphemes. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Why are you enthumeamying evil in your hearts? He knew their thoughts. He knew what they were chewing on. He knew what was causing them uh, the, the tizzy there over his statement about sins being forgiven. It's used in Acts chapter 10 and verse 19. Acts chapter 10. We're not quite that far in the Sunday evening series. Peter was greatly perplexed, perplexed in his mind. He had this dream. He had this vision. And he didn't know what to think about it. And verse 19 says, While Peter was reflecting on the vision, while he was enthumeamying on this vision... The Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. So get up, go downstairs. <laughs> all right? You're thinking too much here, Peter. <laughs> he was thinking on it, chewing on it, and he says, All right, time's up. Go downstairs and go with these guys. Subpoint so B An angel of the Lord is not the angel of the Lord. 
Verse 20, when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. It is not the angel of the Lord. We notice this as well in Acts chapter 5, when uh, we noticed an angel of the Lord and uh, had to make observation there that it was not the angel of the Lord because the angel of the Lord from the Old Testament is Jesus Christ. It is a pre-incarnate Christophany of Jesus Christ. God the Son appeared in the Old Testament many, many times as the angel of the Lord. But this is an angel of the Lord, and that's very important because the angel of the Lord does not reappear in the Gospels or Acts or in the New Testament or any time after the conception of uh, the humanity of Jesus Christ in the womb of the Virgin. And um, these are things that we looked at when we gave just a brief introduction to angelology a few weeks back in the uh, Acts series on Sunday night. All right, An angel of the Lord is not the angel of the Lord. Interestingly enough, um, the name Gabriel does not... uh, uh, appear here as it does in Galatians, I mean as it does in Luke, although I have no reason to doubt that it's Gabriel, it's the same angel that appeared in uh, Luke. Uh, I think the catchphrase of do not be afraid is pretty well a a catchphrase of Gabriel and indicative of him, but regardless of whichever angel it was, it was not the angel of the Lord, because he is in the womb. He is, God the Son has entered into the womb, and... um, is not appearing to uh, to Joseph here in this dream. Point C. In, in the dream message, Joseph is addressed as Joseph, son of David. He is addressed as Joseph, son of David. He is not called Joseph, the son of Jacob. His immediate father, He is called Joseph, son of David. Very significant. In the dream message, Joseph is addressed as Joseph, son of David. Indicating not only the significance of raising the Christ as the heir of the Davidic throne, but also the thinking on David's part as he is enthumatomizing and thinking, considering his responsibility in the Davidic line, in the line of promise, that uh, the seed of the woman was going to come of the line of David. And he's addressed as Joseph, son of David. Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Yosef, we ask David, David, Let's see. Do I have another slide on this? Yes, I do. Although more than 28 generations removed from the great king, a son of David is being called to witness the birth of the long-awaited son of David. Although 28 generations removed. Now, that's pretty good. I don't know how far back you can trace your family tree. If you've wasted as much time as I've wasted to trying to track mine going back and whatever. Okay? I think I can go back nine generations, if I remember right, to whenever the, uh, when, when my particular branch of Bolanders arrived from Germany and, in, uh, on the ship The Good Intent, and they arrived in the 1700s in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. In any event, big deal. So some, German refugees came to Philadelphia. There's a there's a shocking story. Settled settled in uh, Lancaster County of Pennsylvania, and then nine generations later, by way of Pennsylvania and Ohio and Illinois and and um, Iowa and Oregon and Washington, there we have it. Has no impact, no significance whatsoever on anything. But in the dispensation of Israel when the promised seed of the woman, the promised kinsman redeemer of the human race was promised to be a seed of David for a thousand years now that promise has been handed down from father to son, from father to son of every Davidic descendant 
Remember, we date David at roughly 1000 B.C. and a little bit before 1000 B.C. because, strictly speaking, we date Solomon at 1000 B.C. So, you know, date David at, say, 1040. But still, ballpark figures, you've got roughly a millennia after the Davidic Covenant. And from father to son, father to son, father to son, this has been handed down. And there are more than 28 generations, although as we look in Matthew 1, we have the the, the breakdown of 14, 14, 14 here. Although more than 28 generations removed from the great king, a son of David, Joseph, son of David, is being called to witness the birth of the long-awaited son of David, capital S, son of David. All right. Now, it's quite interesting. The, the, the name Dawid, and there's a lot of study to be done on biblical numerology and some of the the uh, what was called gematria of uh, of words and names and so forth. Dawid is spelled D-W-D, and uh, the value, the numerical value of D-W-D is 14 because the the D is a four, the W is a six. And, of course, the D is another 4 again. So, the Hebrew letters DWD numerically add up to 14. And that's been observed how in this passage we have the genealogy of Christ as follows. And it's the book even starts with the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And then it traces from Abraham to David, from David to the captivity, from the captivity to Joseph. And the summary verse in verse 17 says, So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Messiah, 14 generations. And the genealogy list from Abraham to Christ is broken down into those three sections of 14, 14, 14. And there is a uh, interesting study there. So I'm not going to delve into a bunch of this. We've done some genealogy studies already in the introduction to the series, and then there is also information that's printed in the Through the Bible Study Guide, particularly as it relates to um, this list and how it compares to the Old Testament list and, and where uh, names are omitted and, and generations are skipped. But that's, uh, that's something beyond what we want to do here today. All right. We are at the 11 o'clock hour. There are still two more observations to make. Point four, dealing with the virgin birth as the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. And then point five, Joseph's response with unquestioned obedience. And so we will examine those one week from today. Keep in mind, there are critics out there, one of whom I spoke to (laughs) last Saturday, who... um, had a rather skeptical view of the Gospel of Matthew, particularly in the phrases that occur, uh, such as in verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. And the, the critic or the skeptic will say, well, Jesus and his disciples, they did certain things in order to, uh, in order to act like they were fulfilling prophecy. In other words, they could read the prophecy and then they would take steps to do things that would then have the appearance of of fulfilling prophecy. And, you know, like when he drives the money changers out of the temple. And uh, they could say, well, they just staged that. You know, Jesus and his disciples staged that because then they could claim, well, that, that fulfilled prophecy. All right. Well... It's kind of, I guess a skeptic could use that and say that there, it's conceivable that human beings can do things to, uh, to make it look like they're fulfilling prophecy themselves by human effort rather than God doing the work. But then there's other things that you say, well, would a person really subject himself to the crucifixion, for example? <laughs> for, for the sake of uh, humanly trying to fulfill prophecy. And then, of course, then they rely upon the disciples carrying that on and staging the resurrection by stealing the body and claiming to be fulfilled prophecy. Everything else. You, got, you, you open yourself up to a, a, a wide conspiracy at that point with the 500 and more that witnessed the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But then all that being aside, you know, would a human being allow himself to be crucified unless he truly was the Christ accomplishing the Father's purpose? But then this one here, how did he how did he stage his own birth <laughs> you know how did he rig that one 
How did he rig his own birth to a virgin mother? If, if, if all this was was human effort to try to bring about fulfillment of the scriptures, um, this one obviously cannot be. Because we don't get to pick out our own mothers. We can't do that sort of thing. Anyway, we will come back next week and, uh, and deal with this some more. Shall we pray? Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day. Father, uh, it is encouragement to see all of the ways that scriptures were fulfilled. We're going to see this time and time and time again when he comes in to Jerusalem, humble and riding on a colt. Um, so many things, hundreds and hundreds of prophecies fulfilled directly, literally. Prophecies um, that, that he engineered, or did not engineer, but prophecies that you engineered. Prophecies that you promised, prophecies that you brought about. And Father, the, the uh, fulfillment of these things is a great encouragement for us because they were direct, they were literal, and uh, we have prophecies now that are yet unfulfilled. Prophecies that we anticipate at second advent, when he returns with power and great glory, when he establishes, uh, the, reestablishes the throne of David and rules over the, the, uh, the entire world. And so, Father, we have great confidence and encouragement at these things because just as the first advent prophecies were fulfilled directly, literally, immediately, we uh, anticipate the second advent prophecies likewise, that he will descend with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and the trumpet of God. We will ascend to meet him in the clouds. The, uh, the rapture promises are literal promises. The second advent promises are literal promises. The rule on the throne of David is a literal promise. And so we look forward with a great hope. We look forward with a great anticipation. And we thank you for your faithfulness to bring about that which you promised to do. We thank you now for all these things in the name of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.